So instead of putting so many resources on the back end on putting out fires, brands need to focus more on the service they're offering at the beginning. Are we duping or tricking customers? Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also quite simply to have great one-to-one conversation if you need any help. In this episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com, I'm talking to Blake Morgan. Blake is an American customer experience consultant. You can find her website at blakemichelmorgan.com. And she's also author of the book called More is More. And she teaches brands to create what she calls knock your socks off experiences. She's a really interesting character, really uplifting person, and she had a lot of great stories to, to tell me during this episode. So she's going to tell you, for example, why you know, she wanted to become a journalist and why she turned her back uh, to this profession to become a customer experience consultant. She's also going to share a very personal, almost painful story about a breakup that made her a better person. And then she's going to talk about marketing and, and why brands are doing it wrong. Uh, she's using some very, very interesting terms to describe certain type of marketing that shouldn't be done this way. For example, gotcha marketing, which is about tricking people to create profits and bad profit instead of focusing on adding value. Or what she calls insertion marketing, which is about you know, the fact that brands insert themselves in every single channel or in every single part of the, of the life of, of people and, and why people don't like it. And finally, she's actually going to share a very detailed how-to list on how to actually improve customer experience. And more importantly, if you're working for a big company or even a medium-sized company, how to convince your managers or, or the C-suite to actually improve the experience. And obviously, as usual, she's going to share plenty of resources that you can use in your business to improve your experience, customer experience. So have a listen and let me know what you think. Blake, thanks for your time today. Thanks for coming into the, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're very welcome. Um, when was the last time you changed your mind about a brand because of the experience you had with them? Yeah. Well, I was recently driving my car around my neighborhood. I live in the Bay Area and I came upon a truck and it was a big truck. It was a Safeway truck, which here in the U.S. is a huge grocer. And let me preface this by saying that I am a big fan of grocery delivery. I have a newborn baby at home, so I don't have a lot of time to go to the store. So generally I use like Instacart, which is a grocery delivery service here. But I saw the Safeway truck and in big letters, it said free delivery. But then as I squinted while I'm driving my car, getting closer to the truck underneath in small letters, it said only for your first delivery. Hmm. And this is the type of gotcha marketing that has been prevalent 
forever, since the 50s, since the days of Mad Men here in New York City. And I think customers today are fed up with it, and the gotcha marketing model uh, is starting to not work anymore. And we could talk about that more later in the podcast, but this is due to the forced transparency because of things like social media. So, so the gotcha marketing model doesn't work, and Safeway, the grocer here, reminded me of how much I hate gotcha marketing. I think we're going to have a lot of fun on this podcast, to be honest with you, because I love I love what you just said about gotcha marketing. I actually never heard this term before, but that's exactly what pisses me off sometimes about brands. And I suppose what happens with this particular brand is that you're probably not going to buy from them, right? Yeah, it makes you not trust that brand. You today are going to work with brands that deliver a good service that don't try and trick you or dupe you or use what... There's a, a famous guy who wrote, um, his name is Fred Reichold. He writes a lot about net promoter score, and he also talks about something called bad profits. And bad profits are brands that try and dupe or trick customers into buying more. And today, there's nothing more egregious a brand can do to upset a customer. Just like you said, it, it literally, it makes you furious because you feel tricked. And so customers have more choices today than at any time in history, and they're going to vote with their wallet by working with companies that do what they say they're going to do. And there's no small print. Mm -hmm. And so they will vote with their wallet, but they will also openly criticize companies that are actually, you know, distrusting. Um, and they will share that on their social media accounts and they will share that to their friends that, and that might lead in a bigger scale to, you know, big issue for the brand, right? Well, if you think about it, brands today are spending so much money on social customer service. They say that social media customer service is cheaper, but in reality, it's not because you need so many different tools to basically aggregate all of these customer issues and get them into an operational process. And so instead of putting so many resources on the back end on putting out fires, brands need to focus more on the service they're offering at the beginning. Are we duping or tricking customers? Are our products solid? Do they break easily? Do we have easy uh, self-help services so customers don't have to contact us? So again, the social customer service is not cheap. So spend more time and resources at the seed of the customer experience, and you'll find that you have to do less damage control later. That's a very good point. Um, I guess we'll get, we'll get into the more actionable items later. But before that, I'd like to come back to you a little bit. So you studied modern literature, right? In California, correct? In 2006. I mean, I know it's, it's far away, but I know it's not related to customer experience. Right. Yeah. So I, like many people here in the U.S., probably in Europe too, studied humanities subjects, modern literature, the history of art and visual culture. And I thought I was going to be a journalist. So I moved to New York City, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and quickly figured out that the print industry was dying and I needed to shift gears. So I haphazardly kind of fell into customer service. And 10 years later, I still love it. So here I am. And how did you, so how did you move from uh, college to your first kind of big job, which was for a conference producer? When I was in college, I, did a, I didn't want to go home any, ever in the summer. I just wanted to get out of Orange County where I'm from. So I took a lot of internships. And 
One, the, the last internship I took last year in college, I remember it was a magazine. It was a very sexy magazine called Soma. And I remember showing up that day, uh, probably wasn't the most fashionable young lady at the time. This was 10 years ago. Actually, this was more than that. And I remember the publisher said to me, he was pretty, uh, abra he was an abrasive guy. He said to me, you know, you, you really, you shouldn't work here. You shouldn't intern here. You don't look the part like you're, you're not basically our material. And I literally shamelessly begged him. I'm like, please give me this chance. I promise I'll prove you wrong. And it ended up being a great internship. Today, I would have told the guy to go screw himself. But and it, it, when you're starting your career, you don't have that luxury. So I took that internship at the magazine. I got published. I got published wherever I could and basically moved to New York City with no money, with no real plan. But I did have an internship and I had like a one month lease on at my friend's apartment which I couldn't afford. And uh, I just r really hustled. I remember I would take any job. I did uh, data entry or, uh, as a temp work. I would do temp work, like be a secretary for a day. I, I, I recall just sitting and doing literally Excel sheet, like punching in numbers all day. I wanted to claw my eyes out. But it just goes to show you have to just be consistent and work hard and opportunities will open themselves up. And so, so you, do, you did those, those small jobs and when did you land this kind of first, you know, permanent full-time position? Well, to be transparent, this podcast is about transparency. I took a job that was essentially, it was pitched to me as we hire journalists and you have the opportunity to be a conference producer, conference director. But essentially I was in telesales because my job was to call really hundreds of executives each week, probably more than hundreds, and get them to fly with their own money and their own resources to speak at conferences. And the conference industry is very profitable. It's profitable because you're charging people to attend the conference, you're charging vendors to exhibit at the conference, and you're not paying most of your speakers. 95% of our speakers we didn't pay. So it's a hugely um, lucrative model, except for the overhead you pay for the hotel. So that's what I did. I managed to uh, become friendly with the chairperson, chairman of the company, and two years in or so, probably more, I was t I got picked to basically be part of turning a conference company into a media company. And that's how I kept falling into these opportunities with digital. And here I am. So I'm grateful for that telesales job I had so long ago. Yeah, thanks for being so transparent about it. I've been I've been invited to a few conferences. And <laughs> I mean, I have I've, I'm, I'm not as well known as you far from it. I haven't published on Forbes yet. And I remember most of the time at first to be completely transparent, I, we had to pay to speak. I made the deliberate choice to actually pay to speak at conferences that we thought would bring clients and they actually did. And then after a few times, we managed to get invited to speak for free. Okay. And for me, it was an accomplishment. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird industry. The fact that. You have to pay. So the speakers that you called, they had to, they had to fly from their home to wherever the conference uh, was on their own uh, expense. They weren't paid to speak and you were paying for the hotel. 
It was a great opportunity because the only leverage I had was the relationship I built over the phone with these people. And I did everything I could to build relationships over the phone. And I'm an introvert. So for me, being on the phone is really painful, but it forced me to understand rule number one about marketing, which is relationships are everything. And if you don't have a relationship, you don't have context, no one's going to ever do anything for you or believe in what you're building. Because essentially with these conferences or anything you're trying to get buy-in for, you have to make people believe in something that doesn't exist yet. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so in 2012, you started consulting. Do you remember how you got your first, very first customer? <laughs> I, pro I think I begged him. Uh, I think <laughs> my first customer was a company called Suki's Indian Food. And I, you know, I might have met this company at the farmer's market. And okay. this is how I slowly, this is the way I slowly on the ground built relationships with companies, with small businesses. And I, and I learned and the, and that year was really, really hard because I was very green, even though it wasn't that long ago, a lot can change in four or five years. And I was doing projects that I wasn't essentially good at. And I realized quickly, I don't want to be a social media marketer. And I don't, you promise these people that you can help them with social media. It's a dead business. Nobody wants, no, today you realize social media has to be something internal, has to be consistent, and you can't hire a consultant to come in and with social media, you know, sprinkle social media magic overnight and the company blows up. So I, after that, took a couple full-time jobs and a lot of startups were included in those jobs. And I realized that I'm not a good employee. I don't enjoy working for other people. It took a long time for me to realize that, but you have to build your reputation. Now I'm, I've written a book, so I'm hoping that will help my career. Uh, and here I am. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you really had to work hard to, uh, to get this first customer. Do you remember you mentioned the project that you were involved in that you didn't really like. Do you remember what those projects uh, entail? Of course. There was one company that was a wearable company. They eventually got bought by Fossil. They were a watch company. And I did help them with PR. And that was the promise. I'm going to do PR for you. And I soon realized I hate PR. Hate it. <laughs> and it's just awful. And... I got them into Mashable, but and I think some other site, some other online magazines, but uh, essentially it didn't work out. And it took so many times of things not working out for me to realize what I should be doing. So I'm so grateful for all of the times where projects didn't work out because it it guides you into what you're supposed to be doing to your true calling. Mm -hmm. I, I have a confession to make. I'm actually quite jealous of you for one particular reason is that you. I was looking at your Forbes contributions recently and you write, is, do you write twice a week or even three times a week for Forbes? Yeah, I'm publishing a lot of content. I have a podcast show called the Modern Customer Podcast. Mm. I have a show on YouTube. I write an article. So it's about three, three posts a week. Wow. Don't be jealous though. It's uh, yeah, ruling. No. It's, it's a lot of content and work. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's rough. <laughs> no, no, of course. And, and it, it just, as you noticed, I'm, I'm not, uh, English wasn't my, my first language. And I, I don't know. I, I think I always struggle with it to, to write. I'm not really, I've never been happy with my writing. And so 
I've always have been, you know, more comfortable speaking at conferences or, or, or talking to people like we are doing now instead of writing. And it's always something that I liked to be better at. And I think I need to work on it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's quite impressive to see the amount of articles you wrote and uh, quite a few of them are, are quite popular as well. I, I've seen a lot of the top five are, have been viewed quite a lot. So congrats on that. Oh, thank you. But I'll tell you, I fail a lot more than, than I'm successful. And I think that's with, that's what you have to do with the internet. In fact, one of your advisors or part of your community is Rand Fishkin, probably saying his name wrong, but I was reading an article that he wrote about how to be a thought leader, how to be successful at this whole game. And he said that in retrospect, he wishes that he wrote less, but spent more time on quality content and quality things. So I think that's great advice. And I've tried to slow down and do that myself and think more, be more thoughtful about the content because it's so easy to publish or do anything, but be more thoughtful. And I would say for you, you didn't ask me my advice, but I would encourage you to just focus on what you're good at. If you like doing this podcast show, focus on that because what you focus on grows. So, and also you have to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're not going to want to do it for a while. And that's what it takes to be successful. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that's part of a strategy, obviously, to, um, that's the reason why we're doing this podcast and also uh, building Transparent Nation. And this, this is because, yeah, it's not my, my strength. And there are other things that we are much better at doing, which I think interviewing people, at least discussing with them and getting to know them is one of, is one of the, the strengths we need to, uh, to leverage. Um, and as of today, so your consultant now, uh, happy, you're producing a lot of content. What do you think is your number one channel to get new clients? Where are they coming from? Probably my Forbes column, people reading it and contacting me. But I would say your best asset is your relationships. I've had keynote speaking opportunities that I got because a vendor's client worked with me on a board and said, hey, I know Blake Morgan, you should check her out. So it's you kind of have to be everywhere at once. You have to do in-person, you have to put content out there, and you have to be consistent. And you also have to be nice to people because transparency is important, but you have to maintain your reputation. I had people when I was on a board of a nonprofit business group, I, I remember one guy, he was very rude to me. We, we asked him to speak. We didn't have any money or maybe we had a little money. And we said, hey, we're having this event on a yacht and we want you to come speak to our executives. And we don't have a lot of money, but we hope maybe we'll buy your book. We'll buy your book, come and speak. And he was so rude in the email. And he was like, you know, people pay me to speak. I'm insulted. Blah, 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 blah. And a few years later, like I see this guy all the time and we know each other. And I wonder if he remembers those emails he sent me that were so rude. And this happens all the time. So you always have to be professional because it's going to come bite you in, you know, you know where, um, later on. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it goes back to what you're saying about the, the number one thing about marketing is to build relationships. So if you, if you don't build the right relationships, uh, if you create bad relationships, then yeah, it's going to bite you in the ass. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I can, I can, I can say that it's fine. Yeah. I can say the words. You're it's, French. Yeah, so. exactly. I'm allowed. <laughs> 
Coming back to you a little bit more, uh, this is a question I usually ask when we hire people. And I think it's a great question because it gets into the actual, you know, the core of who a person is. So is there any particular event in your life that you can remember that made you who you are today? I would say when you're a kid and you are rejected time and time again, when you're a kid, every kid is rejected at some point and that feel how that feels and you get back up and that resiliency that you build, whether it's you're not popular at school, you didn't make the soccer team, you didn't get chosen for this or that, and you just get back up. And I think for people, if you can make friends with rejection and learn to laugh and get right back up and not take it personally, um, or you know, take the feedback, but don't let it get you down too much so you stay down, that is the number one lesson I hope to impart on my daughter as well. She's only two and a half months old. But keep getting back up. Resiliency will ultimately make you successful and learn to be friends with rejection. Is there any particular, like, is it linked to you as a, as a person? Like a particular event happened to you that really made you realize that? So many my first love dumped me. I thought we were going to get married. And he's like, sorry, <laughs> it's not going to work out when I lived in New York City. And that was a formative experience for me. And I, I was so brokenhearted. I'm being very transparent here for you. Yeah, um, I appreciate and, that. And, and I remember I was close with my boss at the time. Hope he listens to this. And my boss was like, you know, he it was a bunch of, to be honest, young women working at the company for this guy. And he was sort of a mentor to all of us. And he was like, Blake, you know, he saw how depressed I was. And he said, what are you doing? Go enjoy your life. Go out with your girlfriends. Get out. Go. It's New York City. Go to parties. Go enjoy. Be selfish. And I did. I spent a year doing that. And I was at a CRM conference, which I begged to go to. My boss told me, no. I said, please, I want to go. I ended up meeting my husband now, who is the best thing that ever happened to me. He's so amazing. And if I hadn't taken that time after being that, that rejection from that person, I wouldn't have met Jacob, who is who I love so much. You know who Jacob is. I do. <laughs> so, I've been in touch so, with Jacob as well. Yeah. So things always work out. It's just all about your attitude and your mindset. I would I say appreciate. that's my formative experience. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing this. Uh, I really do. And this is, I think this is why I ask this question, because most of the time, this is what happens. One single experience, one single story usually tells you a lot about a person. And I'm glad you're happy now. I'm glad you found the, the, the perfect husband. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, moving on to digital marketing more in particular, and specifically you know, a field that you excel at, which is customer experience. Is there any recently, is there any online experience you had that made you cringe? Oh gosh, every day. So, <laughs> so marketers, unfortunately are still leaning on a crutch and the crutch is insertion advertising. And everywhere you look, marketers are inserting themselves in places that consumers don't want them to be. For example, are you familiar with the GPS app Waze? Do you have that in, Fr yeah, in France? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I think they have that in France. I don't know if it's available in Ireland, though. Oh, you're in Ireland. That's right. I I'm am. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but uh, I, I, my brother is using it. So, yes, they, they have it in France at least. Okay. So, I the other day I was driving my dog, I have two dogs, to the ER, the emergency room. And 
actually my husband was driving. I'm in the front seat. And I was looking at the GPS to get to where I'm going. And all of a sudden, a huge bright red ad pops up in my face. And it says, hey, Blake, want to go to McDonald's? It's only half a mile off the freeway. Come have like $1 sweet tea at McDonald's. And it really confused me because I looked at it initially. I said, oh, no, it's bright red. Is this an emergency on the freeway? And it made me realize that these Brands are trying so hard to insert themselves everywhere in places where consumers will actually look because consumers don't look anymore. We skip ads by service with services like Netflix or HBO, which are, I know you probably know this, but content services for uh, people who want to watch shows. And we're just trying to avoid ads wherever we can. And the harder marketers try to insert themselves in these conversations, the more consumers try and avoid them. And we're all seeing the publishing industry completely morph right now because of ad blocking software. Even Forbes, you can see my columns have been, the, the readership has been way down uh, since they, it's kind of a long story, but ad blocking, it's, a t it's tough for every publisher today. So... That's, I think, the biggest challenge for marketers. It's all about being helpful, providing value. Insertion marketing doesn't work now, and it's going to work even less tomorrow as technologies get more advanced to block these ads. Can you find any other example of best practices that are actually not uh, best practices in marketing outside of this insertion marketing, which I really like the term as well? Absolutely. And I'll give you a, a fun example that is not very tech savvy. Today, I got my farmer's box. It's called a CSA box here in California. And that is a box of produce that is delivered from local farms around where I live. And with the box comes a list of all the produce that I ordered for that week. But it also comes with a fantastic printout paper, actual paper of a recipe that I can make with the seasonal ingredients in the box. So this is a great, super simple, old school example of how it's about providing relevant, timely content to consumers um, and, and providing education. It's not just about ads, hawking services. And I have another example, and it's actually from the IoT world, the Internet of Things world, because the Internet of Things allows brands to connect and talk to consumers more than they've ever had the opportunity in the history of technology. And Absolute Vodka, um, they're working on an IoT-enabled bottle where somebody goes to the airport and picks up the, their vodka bottle at um, the tax-free store, you we're all familiar with those. And the vodka bottle will talk to that customer and provide a relevant opportunity. Like come have lunch in the United Lounge or um, maybe some other type of content or help that consumer. Maybe if the bottle's not at the airport, it's at a liquor store um, or at a bar, um, get that customer home safely. And hopefully these are tangible things that you can think of, but it's about providing relevant, timely content to the consumer um, and, and being educational and helpful. It's not about hawking your message. You talk about ads on the internet in particular. You talked about the fact that big websites like Forbes are need to rethink their, their business model or else they will basically die because people are sick of ads. As marketers and specifically digital marketers, how do you think we could make the internet a better place? 
I have to recap what I just said because it's all about being helpful. Jay Bear, uh, thought leader and author, has this great book called Utility, but it's spelled Y-O-U. And in the book, he talks about how it's so critical that brands are helpful rather than just hawking their marketing messages. Because that's that's how you build a relationship. You you have you provide value. You listen. Have you ever been to a party where you meet someone and they just start talking at you for thirty minutes and you just can't wait to get away from that person, that person that doesn't listen? That's like brands today. They are talking and talking and talking at us, and we can't stand it anymore. We want someone to listen to us. I want someone to come up to me at a party and say, "Oh, hi. What's your name? Hi, my name's Blake. What do you like?" Well, I like to go jogging. I like my dogs. Here's a picture of my baby. (laughs) And then they respond with something relevant. And that's how it is to have a conversation, to build a relationship. And brands need to think more about how they can be better listeners. I have a confession to make. I mean, the second confession of the day. I'm not a big fan of the term customer experience, right? And the reason why I'm not a big fan is because I think that businesses should like they shouldn't have to be told to care about customers, right? Like to me, a business is made to serve a customer else this business wouldn't be there. Right. So it should be obvious. And so why do you think businesses have to be reminded that caring about customers is actually the only thing that matters? Well, way back when these customers started their businesses, they did care about customers. They said, Hey, we have this awesome new product. Let's figure out a way to get it to more people. But along the lines, the the brands grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and they started becoming more focused on their profits and not annual profits, quarterly profits. And this has slowly thrown most companies off course, off the course of what you said, which is what Peter Drucker came up with a long time ago. The, The purpose of a business is to create a customer. They, they stopped thinking about that and they became too focused on Wall Street and quarterly profits. And they, that continues to throw brands off. So my message is don't focus on quarterly profits. Think long term. And if companies would just think long term, they'll be more successful. But they just they can't let it go. They're, they're, they're like, pry it from my cold, dead hands. I will focus on quarterly profits. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a study from Harvard that we saw recently. They, I think it was in 2011 or 2012, they surveyed 34 directors of uh, Fortune 200 companies. So, you know, 34 people sitting on boards of at least one Fortune, uh, Fortune 200 companies. And they asked them, would you destroy the Amazon forest just to make more money. And 31 out of the 34 people said, yes, they would. Well, yeah. Wow. That's depressing. And that's <laughs> that. like from what you're saying. And actually it's quite funny because the quote you mentioned from Peter Drucker, we've actually been mentioning that quite a lot as well. And it's actually, to me, that's actually crazy that we have to say, Hey guys, your business the only thing that matters is to create customers and make them come back. I find that absolutely amazing that we have to, to repeat that. Uh, but I guess that's good for us because it means we have, you know, clients and good companies to run. Yeah, you're right. I, that's really hard to believe about the Amazon rainforest. You wonder if these executives have children that they, <laughs> that's pretty scary. I have to Google that after this call because I didn't see that report. But I'll that's send you the link. To- 
Okay, thank you. That's why we have checks and balances, and that's why we have government. And here in the U.S., we have the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to protect the natural resources. And some companies are taking a different approach, like Patagonia, that give their employees um, the day after the day after Thanksgiving off, which is the Black Friday, which is this obsession with consumerism in the U.S., where People have, there's a lot of sales and people go crazy um, and buy more stuff. But some companies are taking a different stance, like uh, Warby Parker. They provide every pair of glasses that you buy from them online, they will give a pair of glasses to somebody in need. And these one-for-one models are becoming more popular because millennials, people our age, care about the environment, care about the world, and are sick of these corrupt companies that, like you said, are just ready to destroy the, the rainforest if it just makes them more successful. It's hard for me to believe these people get into these positions of power with the attitudes that they have. Yeah, I, it's uh, you have actually, I think, reading my mind because a few questions later, I'm going to ask you a question about our kind, the millennials, even though I don't really like the term, but I think it's <laughs> a good... People be people. What's the definition? It's people below the age of 30. Is that it? Uh, I think millennials is people born after around 1980. Okay. And generation Z is born, I think after 1994. Okay. I was um, born in 1984. So I'm 32. So I'm a millennial. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I am too. 1988. So yeah. Oh, uh, your baby. Uh, yeah. Younger than me. <laughs> I am. I'm going to have to cut that from the listeners. They shouldn't know. Oh, okay. um, no, I'm only messing. Right. Before before moving on to this particular topic, um, I'd, I'd like to just picture us as a, let's say we are a digital marketer and we work for a small online business. Uh, we sell, let's say, shoes online, right? And we sell you know, unique shoes that nobody else has. Um, but our CEO just told us that... Um, we need to make the customer experience better because he he went to this conference and he heard that we need we need to to make the customer experience better so what would be your plan as a digital marketer in a small business small online business to actually make this experience better for customers well first step is about listening finding out even getting on the phone with customers or going to take a customer for lunch and say hey what would you like to see that you don't see now? Or what about this experience would you change? And it's pretty, I would say, easy to do something like this. But a lot of companies don't do this. And they don't value the folks in the contact center, the place where employees literally make contact with customers. And we spend much of our time trying to create connections with customers, trying to, like I said earlier, insertion advertising, trying to insert ourselves. But if we would literally just listen to the contact center and ask the right questions about the customer's experience, we would get so much valuable feedback. It's a treasure trove of information that brands can use to improve the customer experience right away. But we like to create products in a vacuum. We don't wanna take the time and, and here's a phrase that I like, and I took it from a, an author called Gretchen Rubin, who writes about happiness and habits. It's called going slow to go fast. So in order to be successful, we have to slow down and be thoughtful and ask questions. 
It's a fantastic point. And specifically in, in the world of online marketing and online business, uh, what we found out actually is that as marketers, we are, you know, behind our screens every day. And we look at reports in analytics, in Google analytics, we look at data, we look at Excel spreadsheets and there is this disconnect between us and the customer because of the screen, right? We see them as numbers after a while. It's kind of difficult to develop empathy when you look at Excel spreadsheet every day. And this is one of the key points is that not many companies, as you said, would actually take the time to pick up the phone or meet customers in person. They wouldn't. And so if you're willing to do that, you're immediately special. You immediately stand out. I like that. So step one, we listen, right? Uh, we are a small online business. We listen. And then what happens? What should we do? Right. So then we take that feedback and that data and organize it and, and write it into a story that's easily understandable. And we take it to the business, the different um, stakeholders, to the different business groups and say, here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're hearing. How can we take this information and improve the work that we're doing with our customers, the products that we're serving them with? Why would you choose to tell it as a story instead of a spreadsheet? Because we're overloaded with numbers and words and data, and we don't hear anything. And the best way to be effective with people is to tell stories, to make it relatable. It's the best way. There's a whole book about it. It's called How to Win an Argument. It's essentially tell a story. And that's how we learn is through storytelling. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. So stand out by thinking about your delivery and how you're expressing yourself and making it interesting for the person that you're trying to sell on this idea. So step one, we listen. Step two, we collect this feedback. Step three, we create a story and share it with stakeholders. And step four, hopefully they, they agree and we can start actually making the changes. That's absolutely right. Moving on to perhaps it will be the same points, uh, but let's say we are a team, we are in a digital marketing team. So we are part of a much bigger business and this business is not only online, it's also offline, you know, the real world. In such a bigger type of company, how would you approach the same problem? The same way, the same way. In fact, I worked at a big company with over 100,000 employees and I considered myself a change agent and I brought multiple business groups together and organized a day where I said, here's what we're hearing from customers. Here's how I, I would like to work with you to improve XYZ. And it was face-to-face -face meetings. And, and that's what I would encourage any change agent to do, to organize a day, make it interesting for those stakeholders, bring them together and come up with a plan. And I actually also invited everybody from the different group to present their story. So they felt heard as well. I like that. I guess, I guess it's the same point. I think your approach is slightly different. So for small businesses, you can basically go to the stakeholders directly. You don't really have to go through managers after managers. While for big companies, you propose to organize a sort of a corporate event inside the business where everybody can really tell their customer story or their story and hoping to be heard by management, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> right. So going back to what we started to discuss about a few minutes ago, about millennials in particular, um, while I don't necessarily like the term, and I, I need to think about why I don't like it, but what's the main difference between millennials, so people uh, born in the 80s and people born before that? Well, you have the, you might call them the forgotten generation, but people who are, you know, my grandmother's age or a little bit younger, um, and we don't, unfortunately, we don't talk about them. They're, we're, they're called the matures, I think. Um, and then you've got baby boomers. And I believe those are folks born um, in the 40s and later. My dad's a baby boomer. He was born in 1949. He's in his uh, later 60s. And then you've got Generation X, so their kids. That's my brother. Those are folks born before 1980. My brother was born in 1980. And then you have Gen Y. And the thing with Gen Y that some people forget is that we didn't necessarily all grow up with these technologies. I didn't have email until high school, and it wasn't a crucial part of my education experience. And I didn't have a cell phone, I think, till college. So Gen Y still... Um, while we didn't have these technologies growing up, we still have, we still expect instant gratification. And I think that's the main difference between our generation and older generations is just, we expect everything right away. In terms of digital marketing and for digital marketers listening to this podcast, particularly trying to talk to this audience of millennials or generation Y, what's, what would be your, the tactic to use to actually make them care. The cool thing about millennials is that we don't value things. We value experiences over things. And part of this reason is in the early 2000s, we saw our parents and grandparents, at least in the US, I'm sure abroad as well, lose a lot of their savings. If you go to the store today, you see old people working in the grocery stores. It's very sad um, with the 2008 recession, a lot of people lost everything. And I think it was just another reminder that you have to value experiences because things will be taken away from you, but experiences you, you won't ever forget. So this is a generation that really puts a premium on going to concerts, on going on trips. And um, in tandem with these changes, the hospitality industry has completely changed and democratized travel. So anyone can travel. In the 50s, it was really hard to travel. You, It wasn't easy like today where you can book an Airbnb or go on TripAdvisor and it's much more affordable. So all of these factors compound to create this perfect storm where companies can focus on providing interesting experiences rather than um, just focusing on selling things. In fact, there was a recent Golden, Goldman Sachs infograph that showed that people aren't buying things like they used to. For example, before Gen Y, your class was dictated by ownership. Do you own a home? Uh, do you own a car? Are you married? These other things, these like um, turning points in people's lives, like our parents' generation. But now, you know, kids are flocking to cities. And when I say kids, I say Gen Y, Gen Z. They're inspiration hubs, idea hubs in these cities. And so if you move to a city, you don't need a car. You're going to rent an apartment. You're not going to buy an apartment. And you're you're more free. 
And that's what people, young people value is that freedom, that ability to do anything anytime. They don't want to be uh, shackled to having a house, a car, even a family, because a lot of young people are putting off marriage and kids till much later in life. And to come back to the point you made uh, before about, uh, I mean, to the to what we were discussing before as digital marketers in a small online business, a takeaway from that could be if you're selling shoes online, let's say, would be to organize an actual event offline, right? I mean, in the real world where those customers could go and meet maybe celebrities or, or people that they actually love like you know ce like celebs in on snapchat and that kind of thing right absolutely you can use snapchat even here in san francisco stores like lululemon which is a fitness apparel store they organize running clubs where they they have runs every week and we're seeing more retail stores focusing on experiences because other than that what is a, how can a retailer compete with them Amazon or Zappos or whatever they have in other parts of the world, um, Alibaba, you know, these online retailers. So the only differentiator for these stores is to provide something more, something experiential that the online, the internet can't provide. Uh, you wrote a really great article about, uh, you made a point in this article where you mentioned the fact that today we we Google, you know, how to do something when we don't know how to do something. And you're mentioning that in the future, companies will know in advance that we struggle with something in particular and they'll give us the answer in context. So you'll use a tool and it's not working as expected. And this tool will almost talk to you to say, hey, are you having any issues with this part? Perhaps this is what you need to do, right? So what tools do you think or what services do you think digital marketers will use in 10 years that are not that don't exist today? Well, IoT will be huge. Everyone's saying that. I'm kind of sick of hearing it. But basically, the data on the products that we're wearing and we're using will be sent back to, say we're on the phone with a contact center agent. That contact center agent in real time will be able to see Say there's, say there's something in my car. I'm driving in my car and I'm calling to get help. That agent will be able to see, oh, Blake is in her car. She's on the, say I'm in LA. She's on the 101 freeway south and there's traffic or it's raining. So in real time, that agent can see, well, I know Blake can't access, um, she can't look at anything right now because she's driving. Or, you know, they can help me because they know in real time the exact context of my situation. And here's an interesting point. Never in the history of the world have brands had the opportunity to engage with customers wherever they are. For example, I'm wearing a Fitbit watch right now. The moment I wake up, I put on this watch. And Fitbit could, if they wanted, find a way to send me a message at 6 in the morning on my watch or 9.30 at night. And so it's a huge opportunity presented by IoT um, that we didn't have before. Um, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in five years or 10 years in their job? Back to what I said about being helpful. It is all about providing something interesting to be helpful, to be useful, and earning the relationship that way rather than being a great social media marketer, being great at ads. It's not ads are, are never going to work in the future. They, they don't work as well now. They're not going to work in the future. It's all about being useful, being providing contextual help and value.
Uh, if you had to choose three resources for digital marketers out there, could be a book, could be going to a conference, let's say, or it could be a person, you know, blogger or, or, or a thought leader, uh, who and what would it be? Yeah, I would say check out Jay Bear's book, Utility, that I mentioned earlier. It's a really good book that talks about exactly what I'm referring to on being useful. As far as conferences, it is expensive to travel to events. I would say one really helpful thing, if you can swing it, is get to an event that's not in your country. It is so helpful to connect with people in other countries. Every time I've broken bread with someone in another part of the world, it means so much more than if you're just in your local city. And these relationships that you start in person continue to build online. And I notice that people like me much better when they've met me in person. And I like them better too. And that's just the way it works. So go to a conference abroad, break bread with people, spend time, get to know them. And it's wonderful because you learn, you create relationships, and you get that experience, that global experience, which every person needs today, that global experience. It goes back to the experience, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And did I answer, was there a third, there was a third thing you asked me. <laughs> yes, if you, if you have a third thing. What was the third? It was the conference, the book, and then... A person. Oh, and a person. I would say, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day. This guy is so everywhere that honestly, I hate to mention him, but Simon Sinek is a really interesting guy. He's so well-spoken. And I listened to this wonderful podcast yesterday with him and Amy Jo Martin, who has a new podcast show. Um, a call, it's about it's about basically seizing the day um, and, and why not now for people. So it's inspirational. And he he gave her a book that she was going through a hard time in her life. And he talked about how in person they had met. He gave her this book called, um, it's by Viktor Frankl called uh, Man in Search of, um, I think it's In Search of Meaning, Man's Search for Meaning. And it's all about having meaning in your life and faith and how that will ultimately make, get you on your feet and make you successful. So Simon Sinek is always a thought leader to watch because he's always doing something interesting and he's so damn authentic. You almost hate him because he's, he's not, he's so successful, but he's not a cheese ball and he's really thoughtful and well-spoken. Yeah, stop being so cool. A lot of people like this. I wanted to ask you, the next question was, who else do you think I should interview next? But I think we know, I think I need to talk to Simon Sinek. Um, oh, if you I, can get him, yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll try anyway. Um, okay. Now there is this, uh, I think he got known with this TED talk he made. Uh, and I, if I, I'm, I don't want to say something that is not right or that is not true, but if I, I think he got known because of this video, the start with why video. That's right. Yeah. And I think he got, got watched millions and millions of times and it's still, obviously still bearing the fruit of this particular piece of content. So it's you know quite what he said, I want to, I want to share with you something he said, because it, I loved it. It really resonated for me. He said that basically why he was successful was just, he didn't resist the momentum. Things kept happening for him, but it was this momentum and he just didn't say no. He let it kind of guide him on this river, if you will. And he kept saying yes and just taking these signs. And I'm kind of feeling like that in my own life. Hopefully you're feeling like that with your transparency movement. You just have to continue with that momentum and continue to say yes and doors were open and the, what you're supposed to be doing will make itself known. 
Yeah, I, I think as long as you have your your true north, as long as you have a vision, a fight that you're fighting for, you know, something worth that is, you know, a vision of what you want to be or what you want to fight against, uh, then you can say yes to everything. Um, but then there might be a problem with being not focused enough if you say yes to everything as well, uh, without knowing why you're doing something, right? Well, it's back to what I talked about with the rejection, because as you get older, people will tell you what you're good at, what you're not good at. And you shouldn't always get angry because that's such valuable knowledge. And the no's will guide you to the yeses. So listen to the no's, listen to what people say. Ultimately, you'll start to get encouragement and information about the road you're supposed to be on. Have your true north, but do look for those signs and don't have your head in the sand because those signs will help make you successful. And um, Blake, you've been fantastic. Really, really great resources and a lot of good points. Um, where can listeners connect with you, hear more from you? Thank you. They can visit me at blakemichellemorgan.com. Uh, and there you'll find my podcast show, my YouTube show, and my newsletter. And I would love to connect with your listeners, which I assume you have a, a global audience as well. So please come find me and maybe I'll come to your country soon. <laughs> I'm sure they will. So to the listeners out there, thanks for, for listening to this episode. We'll share the notes and all the resources mentioned in the, in the podcast. Uh, Blake, once again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker so thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful.
I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.